the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. We will read verses 12 through 17. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 12. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of His holy and inerrant word. Romans 8, beginning with verse 12. This is the word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, you'll recall that Paul says in the opening verse of this chapter that the believer is not under condemnation, that what the law could not do, God did through Christ by sending him in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. Now, we no longer walk after the flesh, meaning that old way of life apart from the Spirit, but we walk after the Holy Spirit. That is, we are no longer living for self. The Spirit of God within us provides our deepest motives in life. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. All of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ have the Spirit of God. Those belonging to Christ share in Christ's death and resurrection and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now that is a fair sum of what has come before these verses here tonight. So as we move into these verses, there is a call to walk after the Spirit in verses 12 and 13, and it is in this context that Paul introduces the truth of adoption, and it is upon this great truth of adoption that I wish to dwell with you in this sermon this evening. And we begin, of course, with the great privilege that we have of being adopted into God's family, the great privilege of adoption, the privilege of adoption. Do you realize, believer, that you are a child of God? Do you understand what that means? That you are accepted totally and without restraint by God, you are justified, but also you are now His Son in Christ Jesus. You are adopted. Now I want you to think through this privilege with me by reflecting upon the way in which this theme develops over redemptive history. In the Old Testament, there are very few references to God as Father. There are some, but not many. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. By implication, of course, God is their father. In the Old Testament, God's fatherhood is in the context of his historical salvation of his people, especially in the Exodus. The prophets speak of the inconsistency of Israel's disobedience as over against God's fatherly kindness to them. God's fatherly mercy is greater than they can imagine. We read in Jeremiah 31.20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? My heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Forgiveness and mercy become the great themes of God's fatherly salvation. So that in the 103rd Psalm, we are provided with what is perhaps the tenderest Old Testament expression of God's fatherly care for his people. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. But none of these rise 
to the greatness of the theme of adoption that we see in the epistles of Paul because we are dealing with, again, with the growth and development of redemptive history as God revealed himself progressively to his people. And it is only in the coming of Jesus that we begin to understand what it means that God is our Father. So we turn to Jesus for a moment. The prayer literature of the Jews of Jesus' day in Palestine did not, as a norm, address God as Father. One New Testament scholar has found only two examples of that in all of the extant prayer literature of Jesus' day. And it is never personalized as my Father. Never. But Jesus, as you know, routinely addresses God as his Father because he is his unique Son, the second person of the Trinity. There is no analogy at all in Jewish prayer literature to anything like what Jesus does when he prays to God in the intimacy of a son to his father. And then the astounding thing is that Jesus, who is the unique son of God, teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. This is unheard of. Again, in Judaism, it would have been considered disrespectful and irreverent to address God that way. But because Jesus is the unique son who has intimate fellowship with his, possi- with his father, now it is possible for us as his children also to share that intimacy. Now it is possible because through Jesus we have a unique relationship with God. So the Old Testament background is now heightened by the revelation that has come through Jesus who is the son uniquely. And then we turn to the Apostle Paul, and the full light of day falls upon this great theme of God's fatherly care for his people and our adoption into God's family. Paul seems to keep Roman law in the background as he illumines the doctrine of adoption. Paul's a missionary. He makes use of those things that are near at hand in order to help others understand the truth. So the term that is used in the New Testament for adoption, weathesia, is used only five times in the New Testament, each of them in epistles of Paul, and each one of them Roman provinces. Galatia, Romans, Ephesus, Ephesians, and here, of course, in the passage that we have just read, we see it again five times in Galatians, Romans, and Ephesians, all Roman provinces. So what the Apostle Paul is doing is adding a new depth that is expressed by utilizing the Roman background in order to express spiritual truth. In the Roman background, when there was adoption in the Roman world, a child was taken from a previous state and placed into a new one. His old debts were canceled. The adopted father now controls the property, the relationships, the rights of the adopted son. The one who has done the adopting, the new father, supports and maintains his adopted son. And, interestingly enough, it is not so much for the good of the adoptee, it is for the good of the adopter that adoption took place in the Roman world. And of course, we know that we are adopted into God's family for the glory of the adopter. All of these things that were found in Roman adoption are found in a magnificent way in Paul's teaching regarding adoption. We are taken from a previous state, that kingdom of darkness. We are placed into a new one. The old debts that we have have been canceled for us. The Lord now controls our property and relationships and rights as adopted sons. He has promised to support and to maintain his children. 
And all of this for the glory of the adopter. So where John and Peter speak of birth into sonship, Paul uses legal terminology, the idea of adoption, and he relates it to the work of the Holy Spirit here and also especially in the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter. Before going on and saying more about this, reflect with me on how this should relate to our view of God. How often we look upon him as a truant officer. We lack confidence in him. We fail to trust him. We can even think that God is somehow out to get us. But none of that is true. Because Jesus is the unique son, we who now are sons by faith have the privilege of being sons in union with Christ. And God is now our father. And we need to understand our privileges and to live out of them. So, what are some of the privileges of adoption that we find in this text? Well, that moves us to our next point, liberty from slavish fear. In verse 14, we were told, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's adoption. Now, in verse 15, liberty from slavish fear. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And Paul's point is simply that we are free from the law's arraignment. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the way in which I have often expressed it to this congregation to me is rather a wonderful way of thinking of it, that the judge who is behind the bench who has declared you to be completely innocent in union with Christ, that his righteousness has been imputed to you so that you are free from arraignment in his court of law, now takes off his robes of judgment and comes into the courtroom, puts his arm around you, and he says, not only are you free from condemnation in my court of law, But I now make you my son. I'm adopting you and I'm taking you home with me. That's what God has done for us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The judge adopts. We have moved from law to gospel, from the curse to the cross, from self-righteousness to God's righteousness. And this means that we don't have to live in fear any longer. Let's be more precise. The spirit of adoption is the Holy Spirit. So what is the spirit of slavery against which Paul writes in this passage. When he speaks of falling back into, notice again verse 15, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When Paul speaks of falling back into, that helps us to understand. He's speaking of that slavish fear that characterizes unbelievers, that encompasses the fear of death, the fear of life, the fear of everything, the fear of judgment, Fear of what may happen at any moment. Fear of the return of Christ. Fear of standing before Him on that great day. All of that is the fear that will fill an unbeliever's heart. And the Apostle Paul says, we needn't fall back into that. We have a Father in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, it is put this way, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The basic English version paraphrases it this way, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free. And that's Paul's point. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free from slavish fear. 
The law brings no good news, only condemnation in the context of justification and so forth. The gospel is the good news. So you are not living on probation to see how things will turn out in the end if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. God's welcome of you is completely unrestrained. It's not given on the basis of merit, but it's based on Christ's completed work. And therefore, we should not fear. F.F. F. Bruce speaks of Paul's refusal to let pious people seek security before God in their own piety. And that's a good comment. We indeed should seek to be pious people in the best sense of the word. We should seek holiness of life. But our security cannot be found there. Our security may only be found in the work of Christ, in God's grace to us in the gospel, in his justification and his free adoption of us as his children. So if you are tempted to find your security in your own work and in your own effort, then that's fruitless. It just will not happen. If anything characterizes Paul's writing, it is freedom. You need not revert to a servile attitude or to servitude itself. Do we trust in Christ? We have no reason to fear God's wrath. If he accepted the thief on the cross, then we who believe have no reason to despair. I remember the story of a missionary who came to a Chinese village. Of course, this would have been many years ago. A woman who had lived in paganism heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then she came trembling to the missionary and she said, I've never heard this wonderful story before, but I believe it. But you are leaving tomorrow. I may never hear it again. Do you think once is enough to make my soul secure? Well, of course, the answer to the question is yes. How we would long for that woman to have a, a godly church and a, a faithful pastor and to be able to grow in her understanding. But having believed the gospel, that woman was secure. Now, this implies a third thing we see in the text, which is intimacy. Intimacy, and that intimacy is underscored in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. Adoption is the position into which we have been placed. But it also has implications for our relationship with God. And this intimacy is the implication of the position. It's indicated in two ways. First of all, by the use of the term Abba. You see, we cry, Abba, Father. This word Abba, the language we use in addressing God, expresses intimacy that is made possible now through Christ. Abba originated evidently in baby language, but by the New Testament era, it was, it was a ter- term of endearment but also respect. Something like, dear father, dear father. And now the apostle says, this is what you are to pray before God. This is how you are to express yourself before God. You have an intimacy with God as your father so that you may now cry out, Abba. So Jesus taught in the Gospels to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, pater hemon ha entois uranois, pater. But Jesus would have prayed in Aramaic most often, 
Jesus would have used the term Abba. Now he says to you, you may use that expression of endearment that I use to my father. Do you see? That's real intimacy, isn't it? Don't you find that remarkable? The very same term of endearment that Jesus used in his prayer to his father as the unique son of God. We who now are sons of God and adopted into his family may use in our prayer life to the Father. So the intimacy is indicated by Abba, but the intimacy is also indicated by the word cry. You see it here in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba. That is, we come to him with our needs, just as a child might come to his father's, to his father's lap, knowing that he will meet him there and love him and embrace him. The word is the language of crisis. I think that that's indicated not only by the term itself, but by the fact that we are spoken of in verse 17 as the ones who suffer with him. We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified. So it's the language of crisis, just as when, when I called out once to my father, to my dad, to my earthly father, once when I was a boy and I was caught in a barbed wire fence and I couldn't get out. I didn't whimper, I cried. And he came and helped me. But it's very interesting because if we go from the 8th chapter of Romans to the 4th chapter of Galatians and around verse 6, Uh, There, the Apostle Paul unpacks the doctrine of adoption again, and we are said in Romans 8 to cry out ourselves, but in Galatians 4, it is the Holy Spirit who cries out. So there is the unison of the Holy Spirit who is within me who actually cries out, Abba, Father, and who enables me to cry out, Abba, Father. And in that passage in Galatians, I'm convinced, and and I hope you won't mind if I recommend that those of you who might have my little book on Galatians read this section, because I'm half pleased with it. And um, I I really think it would would be a help to you. I hope that doesn't, that's not a commercial. I I just think you would benefit. That when we go to that passage and we find that we are... We are the ones who cry out in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit who cries out in Galatians. I think there the word cry is not so matter, a matter of crisis as it is a matter of joy. <laughs> we actually cry out in joy because the context is one of redemption from our sins, you see? So I think in Galatians he's emphasizing the cry that we offer in prayer is really a cry of praise because of what he has done by redeeming us from our awful sins. Now, both indicate, Abba and cry, a spirit and attitude of prayer. We, we want to be near to God when we are his children. And when we begin to understand adoption, we want to be near to God. Owen Hallowsby, the Scandinavian theologian, tells of how his little boy came to the door of his study. You see, when dad was studying, when he was preparing to preach and teach, and when he was doing his writing, his study was off limits to his little boy. But his little boy came nearer and nearer to the door and would peek in. 
So finally, Owen Hallowsby looked up and spoke to his little boy, and he said, Daddy, I just want to be near you. Well, what could he do but open the door and bring him in? We want to be near our Heavenly Father. And then the faith that God hears and answers when we pray is also indicated to us in this. When we cry out, Abba, Father, we're actually believing that the Lord hears us when we pray. And among the best illustrations of this to which I come time and again is how Dietrich, Luther's great friend, reported eavesdropping on Martin Luther while he prayed. He could hardly believe how Martin Luther prayed. And he says that Luther prays with all the devotion of a man before God, but with all the confidence of a child speaking to his father. He seemed fully assured that nothing he asked could fail to be accomplished. Now, I want to be challenged by that afresh, and I want you to be challenged by it afresh as well. Adoption means free access into the presence of God. Luther said, we ought to pray the way his dog watched meat. Full concentration. Nothing, nothing but that meat in front of me. Wanting nothing else. And I hope you will take the Lord's Prayer upon your lips daily with great joy. How this gives a cheerful heart to the people of God. I think we just don't stay long enough with God. I'm talking about our personal time with God. We rush through it. We hurry through it. We don't spend enough time. A young minister met a man from Northern Ireland. I read this illustration some time back who had moved to California for his health. This young man came and was talking to this old gentleman. The young man sat at his feet virtually. He said, young man, are you trying to learn to preach? And then this old fellow opened his Bible and expounded truth after truth after truth after truth. And so the young man said, where did you get these things? And he answered, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. I would kneel with my Bible for hours, asking the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul. Well, we just don't take time. We're just too busy. But then as we think about the privileges of adoption, another is this, assurance, assurance. That really is the fourth point, assurance, number four. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this refers to the witness borne by the Holy Spirit himself, a witness that works within the believer's consciousness. The Holy Spirit takes his word, I'm not suggesting working apart from the word, He takes his word and applies the promise to your heart, enabling you to see God your Father as your Father in the gospel in Christ. And this means that the Holy Spirit makes you secure in Christ. Paul refers to the security that we have in Christ due to the Spirit of God in three other ways in his epistles. I want to mention them briefly to you. Paul calls the Spirit the earnest of our inheritance which we've seen in Ephesians, it's also found in 2 Corinthians, the earnest of our inheritance, that means a down payment, a guarantee. Paul refers to the Spirit as first fruits, and he actually does in this chapter, in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits, his work is the first of the entirely anticipated crop, And then Paul calls the the Spirit, keeping us safe until 
until Christ comes again. He calls the Spirit keeping us safe until Christ comes again. The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit of freedom. The Holy Spirit then assures us of the truths with which this chapter closes. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing and no one. The witness borne by the Holy Spirit through the Word puts my name on God's promise and just ends all controversy over the matter of my security. Which leads to another thing I want to point out briefly, and that is another privilege of our adoption is inheritance. We find it in verse 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him, that's our inheritance. Now notice here in these verses that we have the pattern, the cross precedes the crown. If children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is the way it was with Christ. He came down, He suffered and was glorified. This is what is being reproduced in the lives of His people. It's always the case. Suffering provides no evidence against adoption. Did not God's own unique Son suffer in ways we will never know for our redemption? In suffering, God may seem hidden to us, but His hiddenness does not mean that He is absent from us. God's adopted children are assured of their inheritance. We are called joint heirs with Christ. And in the Roman world, the adopted son of a Roman patrician held patrician rank no matter how low his birth had been. And so we hold patrician rank. Again, verse 23 uses the term op-RK. There he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That word first fruits, op-RK, We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now this is the very same word that is used of Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the aparche, the first fruits of those who sleep. Now you know what it means for the resurrection. It means that Jesus' resurrection is the first portion of the entirely anticipated crop so that our resurrection has already begun in Him. Well, here it's applied to the Spirit, the same word, aparche. It means that there is a future aspect to our adoption, an inheritance that awaits us at the resurrection, but that inheritance already belongs to us. It's already yours as a child of God. And so, First Peter, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And ultimately, God himself is our inheritance. We are joint heirs, which means we enter into the possession of the inheritance that was bestowed on Christ. Joint heirs. All that has been given to him as mediator has been given to you as his son or as his daughter, even though you may not experience the fullness of it yet, it belongs to you by right. 
So let's sum this up. This is a Sunday evening, and I understand that we need to sum it up. Paul's been writing all that we've been looking over these past weeks in Romans to encourage security and joy and assurance in Christian living. Joint airship makes our security an absolute security. Because it means that what is true of him is true of us. To put it another way, Jesus Christ purchased you and it is guaranteed that his investment will never fail. There will never be a failing or a great depression for Jesus Christ. But that same Christ has granted you the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Hebrews 1-2 tells us that Christ is the heir of all things. So think about this when you go through your struggles this week. You are in union with Christ through the adoptive spirit of Christ. If all things are his and you are an heir with him, then that means all things belong to you. Go figure. You can't, can you? It's incalculable. But that's what it means. That's what it means. So when my pastor, Dr. James M. Baird, took that baby from his parents when I was a boy in his congregation, and he baptized that little screaming infant the whole time Dr. Baird held him. And then Dr. Baird put that little child back into his father's arms. Dr. Baird climbed back into the pulpit and looked over the congregation And he said, would that we were so secure in our Heavenly Father's arms. The child cried as if he had been pinched until Dr. Baird put him back into his dad's arms. So I got the point. I've never forgotten it. If God is my father, if I am his adopted child, then I am secure. I may not always feel it. I should. But it's true whether I feel it or not. Does that attitude characterize your Christian living? And the Spirit of God is God's first fruits, the foretaste of it all in your life. So take these words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, in light of what Paul says about adoption. Pray them with Paul's teaching in mind. Luther said, Martin Luther, If I understood these words in faith, that the God who holds heaven and earth in his hand is my Father. I would conclude that therefore I am Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore Christ is my brother. Therefore all things are mine. Gabriel is my servant. Raphael is my coachman. And all the other angels are ministering spirits sent forth by my Father in heaven to serve me in all my needs. Do we even begin to understand what blessing is ours as adopted children of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But this I know, Jesus says of you, believer, God's adopted child, I know him, I stand back of him, I own this one as mine, and he is safe for time and eternity. And God's people said, Amen.